This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and wider world. The main issue, which I believe is going to be the game changer for Ukraine in terms of rule of law, relates to the oligarchs. Hello once again and welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a series by commonspace.eu in collaboration with the City of The Hague, where we host conversations on the future of Europe in the world. Today, we are going to be speaking about the rule of law in Ukraine, a country that 30 years ago declared independence at the dissolution of the Soviet Union and has since made its Western aspirations clear. It signed an association agreement with the EU in 2014, declaring its intention to apply for membership of the bloc in 2024. However, its unambiguous Western trajectory has not made life easy for one of Europe's largest countries. Ukraine has fallen victim to extensive interference by Russia, including Moscow's support of separatist groups in conflict in the east of the country and its 2014 annexation of Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. With the primacy of the rule of law being considered a central pillar of the European Union, Ukraine has been keen to promote and support it. So what is the state of the rule of law in Ukraine? What are the challenges it faces and how can the EU best support its valued eastern neighbour towards this end? To shed some light on these issues, I'm going to be speaking to Brian Mefford, founder and director of the Kiev-based consultancy Wooden Horse Strategies LLC. And afterwards, I will talk to Dr. Valentin Gvozdi, the vice president of the Ukrainian National Bar Association. So without further ado, let's go to my first guest. So to speak on this topic, I am delighted to be joined by Brian Mefford. So Brian is the director and founder of Wooden Horse Strategies LLC, a boutique government relations and strategic communications firm based in Kiev, Ukraine. He's also a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre think tank. Named by the Kiev Post newspaper as one of the 20 most influential expats in Ukraine, Brian has lived and worked in Eastern Europe continuously for more than 22 years. So, Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Great. Well, I think just to give our listeners a a basic idea, um, as somebody like yourself who spent two decades living and working in Ukraine and who's accompanied the process of transition and seen it from very close quarters, can you provide some insight for our listeners on the state of the rule of law there? Sure, William. You know, rule of law in Ukraine is is truly a half-empty, half-full glass uh, to look at. Uh, there's a number of achievements over Ukraine's 30 years. At the same time, there's a, a number of deficiencies which still need to be addressed. Uh, the laws themselves are generally well-written. Uh, they passed, you know, Venice Commission vetting and uh, European Union experts have certainly contributed to the writing of that legislation. Uh, so the laws themselves are not the problem. The, the problem has always come in the implementation of the laws um, and how it is applied, of course. And then there's the issue of political will. Um, so to go into it a little bit deeper, let me give everyone an example that they'll probably recall. In 2004, there was the Orange Revolution, right? So there was a stolen election and the opposition leader, uh, he, and, he and his supporters went to the central square in Kyiv, the Maidan, uh, and they had protests for 17 days. So people remember that. They remember maybe Viktor Yushchenko or the color orange, or they, they remember these sorts of things. And they remember that ultimately this is the side that won. What people forget, though, is uh, the protest aside, 
it was not the protests themselves that actually brought about the uh, the victory for rule of law in Ukraine and, and the victory for a, a, a court-ordered new election, uh, which brought about a, a democratic, free and fair result. Uh, it was actually a Supreme Court decision. So there was a mechanism. It wasn't just the protest. Ukraine had on the books you know, the, the rules and procedures whereby an election could be invalidated and a new election ordered by uh, the high court of the land. So uh, that was one of the great victories, I would say, for rule of law in Ukraine. So that's a, that's, a, that's a good case. Unfortunately, after that, and for the last 17 years since that time, rule of law has continued to be selective, uh, selectively enforced. Uh, the law is not equal for the, the rich and the poor. And uh, so that has that's created a lot of, of problems uh, in Ukraine's westward path, particularly towards European Union structures. Following Euromaidan in 2014, which was a, a second major Ukrainian protest that people remember, uh, I always say that the Orange Revolution in 2004 was about Ukraine saying to the world, we are an independent country from Russia. We are we have a lot in common with Russia, but we are independent. We are separate. We are Ukrainians. The Euromaidan protests were about Ukraine saying, we are making a European civilization choice. So we're, we're, we have trade with Russia. We have many things in common with the East, but we see our future in Brussels and not in Bishkek. And so this was significant. And of course, Russia, just as they're not responding well today uh, to a number of things Ukraine is doing, uh, responded very poorly then, and then annexed Crimea and, and then parts of the Donbass and so forth. But in the Euromaidan uh, case, you know, the, the dictatorial president was ousted. The laws and procedures worked to appoint an acting president and then hold an election shortly thereafter and elect uh, through a democratic method, uh, a democratically elected president. And, and so what happened was there was a lot of enthusiasm about, okay, now Ukraine's got a second chance or a third chance, however you want to count, sure. uh, to get this right. So the European Union, uh, the United States, other partners came in in a big way to bring both technical experience, funding, uh, and these sorts of things to help Ukraine create independent anti-corruption uh, agencies and, and state bodies. Unfortunately, though, those bodies have not been viewed as effective. If you look at trust in state institutions ranging, ranging from the army to the parliament to the president and so forth. The anti-corruption agencies tend to be on the lower side of the trust level, uh, which sometimes trust level in the, in the teens, under 20%. And, and why is that? Well, it all comes down to the fact that the bodies exist, but to date they have not had any real success stories. No high-ranking officials have been put behind bars the oligarchs continue to prosper uh, and uh, go about their often illegal businesses without trouble uh, or, or problems from the police. So the public is disappointed with these agencies. That's not to say they can't work okay. correctly, but uh, so far to date, they have not done so. So that that's a quick overview of the, the situation with rule of law. Uh, one other area where that would apply and worth mentioning is in terms of uh, you know, investments and, and, and foreign investors. Yep. I do work with a lot of Western companies as clients here in Ukraine. And one of the things I always tell them is, 
make sure that you have, as a foreign company, very good legal counsel if you're coming to Ukraine, because Ukrainian companies can afford to make mistakes. Foreign companies cannot afford to make mistakes. It will be very costly. And there's you know numerous cases of, unfortunately, foreign investors who have gotten treated poorly and have had their investments, you know, in some cases taken outright from them or they've been punished in, in a selective manner. So Ukraine has not done a great job in promoting itself as an investment climate to date, largely due to the uh, selective rule of law, uh, which has been a problem here for many years. Sure. So I mean, you, you mentioned there the issues of political will, um, selectively embracing the, the rule of law, and, and also just general trust against these uh, bodies that, that, that are in place, but um, haven't necessarily had a huge amount of very visual success in, in, in what they're doing. I mean, if you, were to, uh, if you were to lay out what you see as the biggest challenges that the country faces on rule of law issues and, and where its weakest points lie, um, are these connected to the things that you, that you just mentioned? Sure. The main issue, which I believe is going to be the game changer for Ukraine in terms of rule of law, relates to the oligarchs. And in Ukraine, there are a number of, say, seven to ten very powerful oligarchs in different sectors of the economy who tend to control huge swaths of the economy. Uh, as a result, of course, it affects the political system. It affects the poor rule of law because they get treated one way and the average person gets treated another way. Sure. There's uh, people in Ukraine say there's two types of corruption. There's the, the corruption that you do to get by, right? So you, you know, a policeman stops you for, uh, you know, to shake you down because you don't have your documents. So you, you pay a small bribe just to get by, not to have problems. Okay. Those are the, those, those are the bribes that people pay, unfortunately, on a fairly regular basis because they just want to get by and get on with their lives. But then there's the bribes that the oligarchs do, which people tend to view much more harshly. Uh, and that's the kind of things that where they bribe people to get, you know, contracts or tenders or, or some special benefits. Uh, so it's viewed in a much more negative way because it, it affects this elite oligarch class. The good news is the oligarchs in Ukraine are a a dying breed. They're like dinosaurs. Uh, these are the final days of their existence in Ukraine, okay. the final years. So they're roaming around, but the problem is they're huge predators, right? They're huge ty Tyrannosaurus rexes out there, and they're just devouring, you know, different parts of the economy in the meantime. Now, the good news is eventually these, these are going to die out because the people have proven through two revolutions, they're not willing to, to tolerate that. Um, and also, you know, the the move over 30 years has been towards, you know, greater democratization, greater rule of law, and uh, the people, you know, that are now in their 30s in this in this country don't even have a recollection of the Soviet Union. They were born after the Soviet Union, so that in, a, in and of itself is also a a, um, a metric which is going to affect positive change in Ukraine. So as the oligarchs see their power on the wane. Um, and also keep in mind that the oligarchs, because it's an interconnected world and they want to do business in Europe and they want to do business elsewhere, uh, they have to meet certain requirements that they didn't have to meet 20 years ago. So it's not as easy to launder money and do these sorts of illegal activities like it was before. So the day of the, of the oligarchs is coming to an end, and I believe Ukrainians will see that perhaps in the next 10 years, where there'll be very rich business interest, uh, but there will not be a handful of oligarchs who uh, can thwart the rule of law 
in, in the country. One of the good things that is happening, um, I mean, we'll see how the, it, it plays out in reality, but President Zelensky has announced a de-oligarchization effort to uh, limit the powers of oligarchs in the political sphere, uh, to get them out of the media, and so forth. Um, we will see how it actually is implemented. It, it cannot be a selective de-oligarchization. It has to be across the board, of course. Of course. Uh, but if it's implemented to affect all the oligarchs, uh, even the ones that support the president, uh, then it will be judged as a success by the public. So that's something we'll keep a close eye on and monitor. Okay, and, and you mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of this conversation about the, the uh, Russian interference and the conflicts in, in Donbass and Crimea. So, I mean, to, to, what, to what extent or, or how do these create difficulties for the rule of law in Ukraine? Former U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt, who was the ambassador during Euromaidan, he said quite correctly, Ukraine is fighting two battles. They're fighting a battle with Russia on a military side of things, and they're also fighting an internal battle with corruption. And that is still true today, seven years later. The Russians, though, that adds an extra destabilization effect for Ukraine, because uh, if Ukraine is successful democratically, has strong rule of law institutions which meet European standards, that is a threat to the current regime in Russia because they don't want to see Ukraine succeed as a European country because then Russians are going to ask the obvious question, well, <laughs> if Ukraine can do it, why can't we do it, right? Sure, so Russia puts pressure on Ukraine uh, through corruption in the business sphere. Uh, they, there's corruption uh, and pressure they put on the government side. Uh, they undermine economic stability through corruption, and then they undermine the confidence in the government. And and when you have you know eighty to a hundred thousand troops on the border, of course it also causes a bit of concern among the population. Now the Ukrainians, I, I was commenting to the media the other day. They were asking, "Do you see a panic in Ukraine?" And I said, "No, because." Ukrainians have seen this many, many times before. Uh, many troops, you know, massed on the border, uh, the threat of energy cutoffs in the winter. Uh, Ukrainians have seen this before and experienced it. So you know, there's no panic. Ukrainians are quite resilient. Uh, at the same time, that's difficult for any country to experience. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to build strong you know, institutions and, and, and talk about the long term and rule of law when you have this constant pressure from a, a hostile neighbor. Uh, like as Russia has turned out to be. Sure. So, with with this considered, and with the with the previous points that you made, where do you see opportunities for more engagement from Western partners, you know, such as the European Union or the United States, on on these rule of law issues in the country? And and do you, from your perspective, perceive any low hanging fruit there? Sure. So recently, a, a new judicial reform has been passed. We'll see how this is implemented, uh, because again, the problem is not the how well the laws are written, and the problem has always been the, the, the question of political will. So if you go back to 2014, after Euromaidan, Petro Poroshenko won the presidency uh, without a runoff election, and that was the first time that that had happened uh, since 94 in Ukraine. The problem was uh, they ran out of political will because they wasted too much time in the early days over internal squabbles, making just cosmetic changes when they had the opportunity to make sweeping changes. Okay. I always use I always use an analogy from the United States during the, the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln didn't try to wait till after the American Civil War to make the radical change of ending slavery. He said, no, this is a radical time. Let's make the radical changes. 
Uh, unfortunately, those radical changes were not implemented uh, during the Poroshenko administration. There was there was certainly a lot of progress, but at the same time, the changes did not keep up with the public's desire and expectation for change. So that led to five years later, Mr. Zelensky, a uh, television actor coming out of nowhere to win a majority in, in the first round without a runoff and beat Poroshenko quite decisively. And again, the same thing, his party came in, won a, a mono majority in parliament, even without a coalition shortly thereafter. And two and a half years later now, you know, his party seems to be running out of steam uh, because they're still getting some things done, uh, but they're not able to make changes fast enough. The president's rating is falling. It's a bit disappointing and disturbing because they, in many ways, have missed the opportunity to make those radical changes uh, to bring about the kind of rule of law and stability Ukraine needs. Okay, so is there a role for the EU here? Sure. So the EU, of course, is is, is tremendously active in Ukraine. They have been a very positive force uh, for many years. Uh, I would say that in addition to the European Union institutions working in country, one of the strongest bodies, the most influential bodies in Ukraine uh, that the EU plays a, a large part in is the uh, G7, because the G7 ambassadors are meeting every two weeks with the president uh, to bring up issues of, of key importance. So there's very great, I would say, excellent coordination between among all the G7 partners. And one of the things that they've been pushing for most recently is for the government to appoint a new special anti-corruption prosecutor. There's a vacancy in that post right now. And so the G7 uh, recently, as last week, uh, came out with a statement pushing the, the Ukrainian government to get that resolved quickly in the new year. Of course, there's a process, there's a testing and vetting and that sort of thing that's going on. But uh, the government could be more expeditious in getting this uh, position filled because it's a key position and you can't have effective anti-corruption agencies if you don't have anti-corruption personnel on on board. Sure. Well, Brian, I won't take up much more of your time, but um, are you optimistic about the future of the rule of law in Ukraine? And, and is there anything else that you'd like to say about it? Yes, I am. Uh, the reason is, if you look at Ukraine, and, and this is where I believe it causes a lot of frustration, if you look at Ukraine over periods of, say, six months or a year, it's hard sometimes to understand as a country going you know, forward or backwards or you know, up or down. And it's very choppy. Uh, but in Ukraine, it's a country of 42 million people. It's not a tiny country. It's geographically large as well. So uh, in addition to having a destabilizer, uh, Russia, and now to a lesser degree, Belarus, uh, two, two bad neighbors in the neighborhood, um, you know, that, that does slow down Ukraine's uh, westward path. Uh, but that aside, if you look at five and 10 year increments, Ukraine has definitely made progress. If you look at 30 years, huge progress. If you look at the last five years, you know, the last five years, three years, also huge progress. So Ukraine is moving in the right direction. As I mentioned before, Euromaidan was about making a European civilization choice. And that is not going to be reversed, even with Russian tanks on the border mm -hmm. and strong words from, from Putin. Um, Ukraine is going to continue to move. Uh, towards the European Union, that path has already been decided. And as a result, rule of law will improve. Uh, the oligarchs will uh, die out eventually. And uh, Ukraine is going to make it uh, on a European path. Well, great, Brian. And on that note, I think we'll leave the conversation there. But thank you so much for providing this insight for our listeners. And uh, I hope to speak to you again sometime soon. With pleasure. Thank you.
So now we're going to dive a little bit deeper with the help of Dr. Valentin Gvozdi, the Vice President of the Ukrainian National Bar Association, the regulator of the legal profession in Ukraine. He's also managing partner at Go Law, a leading Ukrainian law firm, and in 2017 was awarded the title of Honored Lawyer of Ukraine. Valentin is also a Doctor of Philosophy in Administrative Law and Process, Financial Law and Informational Law. Valentin, thank you very much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So, Valentin, could you start by telling me a little bit about the Ukrainian National Bar Association? So, for instance, when it was formed, what are its objectives and uh, how does it achieve them? I will be happy. Yeah. Ukrainian National Bar Association was created only in 2012 as an absolutely independent uh, organization. And now it's combined all professional attorneys at law in Ukraine. Today we are 60,000 lawyers. So wow. we have a huge number of people who are in profession. And this profession is regulated, actually. So we are the regulator of the profession. We are not NGO. We're National Bar Association, so we have right to admit to the bar, and also we are entitled to proceed with disciplinary procedures as, uh, as well. But it was a long, long way to receive our own organization. So uh, after Ukraine got its independence from Soviet Union in the 90s, uh, Ukraine uh, joined Council of Europe. And one of the conditions of Council of Europe for Ukraine after its admission was to create independent bar on a national level, like the only one organization who will be the voice of legal profession. And you know what? It took almost 28 years or 25 years to, to, to fulfill this obligation, to actually. One. Yeah. Okay. And uh, our law based on which we exist actually was uh, designed and developed with engagement of the most famous uh, Europeans and also American experts who helped Ukraine to make reforms. And it was uh, European integrating law and uh, Ukraine adopted it in 2012 actually. So we've been created based on this uh, law and uh, we built on the basis of elections all positions are elected, so we built on the principle from the bottom to the top. Okay. Every member of National Bar Association has right to be elected in self-government uh, bodies. We have 27 regions in Ukraine, and each region has its local regional bar. Okay. After that, we have on a national level Bar Council of Ukraine. And this Bar Council of Ukraine has power to adopt self-regulating acts for lawyers, which are mandatory and obligatory for lawyers. Okay. So uh, we do it to help people have better access to justice okay. and uh, have better standards uh, of uh, legal services. Actually, today, National Bar Association is very strong and very modern organization. We participate actively in legislation process. We cooperate with our parliament. We have a lot of committees inside of National Bar Association, and those committees communicate with relevant committees of the parliament. So in this way, we highly engaged in uh, producing legislation, modern new legislation, protecting human rights and protecting rights of business uh, in Ukraine, etc. Sure. And, and so from this unique perspective, how would you describe the state of the rule of law in Ukraine? I would say 
we still have a lot of work to do ahead, but uh, on the other hand, we have huge progress in the last 30 years. As you may know, our country just celebrated 30 years independence anniversary, and National Bar Association just last week we celebrated nine years anniversary. So we're a very young organization, but for these nine years we already made huge contribution into build of rule of law in Ukraine. Actually, the guarantee for for the person, for human being, it doesn't matter what you do or you're just employee, we're a big businessman, having a huge business, you need to be sure that your property will be protected and your rights would not be violated. That is what is rule of law. And actually, one of my colleagues, I think it was president of uh, German Federal National Bar Association, uh, Ulrich Wessels, uh, when he been asked, what is rule of law? How would you... How would you name it? He said, huh, this is very simply for, for people who doesn't have law degree. If you did not commit a crime, you would never go to jail. That is what this rule of law is. And I want to say you that maybe 12, 15 years ago in Ukraine, it could happen that you could go to jail without doing anything wrong. But now things dramatically changed for better. Now, uh, the role of the bar is tremendous. We received a lot of rights based on the law, which gives us a huge, huge spectrum of instruments to protect human rights. Sure. And this is also a huge step forward. So I would say it's not so bad as people used to think that things in Ukraine are so bad. Actually, it's not. It's not at all. And uh, trust me, we have communication with all our Eastern Partnership countries, other neighbors. Um, I can assure you that we have good progress in this issue, actually. Sure. And, and so what type of relations does the, the Ukrainian National Bar Association have with the Ukrainian state? Oh, that's a good question. Because every state, I think, does not, uh, is not happy if they have independent bar. Mm -hmm. Because bar is the uh, number one critics troops for, for human rights. Uh, we protect people from the state, including from the state, because state has a machine of accusing people of you know, committing crimes, and they have these courts which can judge people, sentence them. So the only institution who can protect people from all this huge, very powerful stuff. So to do it in the right way, we need to be independent. And this is unique uh, also uh, if you... If you study this issue, you will find out that not all Europeans, but national bar associations are independent from the state in this way, which we are. We're completely independent. What does it mean? Our independence is ensured that state does not participate in any processes of regulation of our profession. We're completely self-governed. We're completely uh, self-regulated. Mm -hmm. We're acting based on the law which put basic issues, and then we de develop our regulation by ourselves. Then we never received any fundings from state 
because it's a guarantee of our independence. We just live and exist thanks to our yearly based fee, which is paid by our members. And this is also guarantee of our independence. If we're to move on to another question, um, the Ukrainian government um, and many other Ukrainian political parties profess to supporting the country's Euro-Atlantic aspirations. So how do you see the European Union engaging with Ukraine, particularly in the areas related to justice and rule of law? And, and is there more that they could be doing? Oh, actually, Ukrainian people already made their choice. So they choose European direction of our development. It's it's even in our constitution. So uh, we're moving forward and uh, we, uh, we do a lot, actually. And speaking about National Bar Association, I'd just like to mention that uh, in Europe exists organization, and the name of the organization is CCBE. This is an organization which united all European National Bar Association in one place. So this, this is the Council of Bars and Lawyers Association. Exactly. Sure. And Ukraine is an uh, observer member of this organization starting from 2016. And we actively participate in, uh, in its activity. Of course, we cannot do it in full because we are not full member. Uh, it's only uh, accessible for members of EU and countries which are associated with EU based on serious agreements, as you know, like Switzerland, other countries. And uh, but um, it gives us good chance uh, to show to our European colleagues how we're developing, what we're achieving, and uh, truly speaking, we have a lot to share. Actually, we've been built from scratch. It's only nine years old, so we had chance to build everything in a very, very modern way, I would say. And our colleagues from European countries uh, bounded with traditions. They cannot change many processes. And we share our experience with our colleagues as well in Europe. So, But, of course, we're looking forward to make our participation in this CCB organization more involved. We'd like to have more rights. We'd like to have right to vote because this organization represents legal profession also in uh, Council of Europe. And as you know, Ukraine is a member of Council of Europe. So it's strange if we are part of legal profession of Europe and we cannot vote, but this organization represents European lawyers, which we are. Sure. So it's uh, it's a lot of work ahead. So you see yourself, uh, your organization, moving closer towards this body, if, if it was possible? We're already very close. We would like to have more rights. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Valentin, as a final question, you alluded there to there being things that the European Union and your European partners can learn from Ukraine uh, and from the experience of the Ukrainian National Bar Association. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what these are? You know, this is a very interesting question, and I would say uh, you may know that Ukraine recently made a huge step forward in digitalization. So we have everything digital officially. We have our passports online, our driving license online, commerce certificate online, even certificate of your child's born online. Everything is online in your phone, and it's official. You can travel within the country only with your telephone, and that's enough. No documents needed, nothing. Okay. Uh, and... You may also know that Ukraine is a top leader in the world in payment procedures. So we use online payments more than any other country in the world. So we have a lot of IT specialists 
we ha we have in Ukraine all international IT companies who are looking for great talents, and uh, Ukrainian National Bar Association, of course, also following this trend from the very beginning. So we made everything online for our members. We have unique services which we designed from scratch, and made life of our colleagues easier. Uh, it's Uni unified register of the lawyers, which is uh, in a real-time regime. You can check the status of the lawyer, if it's in good standing or not, okay. uh, just to be sure that this lawyer is uh, regulated and not, not out of, uh, you know, uh, under disciplinary procedures or something like this. We also created great online platform of continuous professional education. It's not like it's not just a platform for learning. It's also a platform to proceed the process. Yeah. Not only control the obligation to study, but also to help our members to find the best products and have them immediately in a very convenient way to learn as well as they want to any numerous thousands of topics uh, offered to them. Also, we have online uh, power attorney generation system, which leads us directly into electronic court, which is established in Ukraine. So you can participate in litigation process just sitting in your room, in your office. So during one day, you can participate in litigations in different uh, ends of the country, which is hundreds of kilometers between them. And it's, it's, it's a modern day. And that is what we offer in to our European colleagues who doesn't have it. They're far away from this digitalization process, and we share in our experience uh, actually very actively. Sure. So, so it's a very much a two-way street here with Ukraine Absolutely. and the European yes. Union. Great. Well, Valentin, I, I have to say I thank you very much for joining me today, and um, I hope to hear from you again soon. Thank you for inviting me. Well, a big thank you to both our speakers there, Brian Mefford and Dr. Valentin Gvozdi. From both conversations, it is clear that there are certainly challenges to the rule of law in Ukraine that remain, but the country has made considerable progress and does appear to be on the right path. So how do you think the European Union could be helping Ukraine on this journey? Is there anything that you think the bloc could or should be doing? Within the Conference on the Future of Europe, you have the opportunity to let the EU know. Once again, I have posted the link for the conference's online platform in the episode description, where you can see events that are taking place, read ideas and reports, and submit ideas of your own. So do check it out and let your voice be heard. For those of you that are based in and around The Hague, you can keep up with what's happening in the city by following at City of The Hague, at Links Europe, and at Common Space EU on Twitter. And if you are looking for news, analysis, and commentary on the EU and its neighbourhood, why not visit our website, www.commonspace.eu, where we are also publishing the reports of our events within the Conference on the Future of Europe. In our next episode, we are going to be looking at the important question of how the EU should respond to aspiring new members. Until next time, thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands.